You're listening to City Church Manchester. We are a church that invites everyone to enjoy Christ for the glory of God. If we can serve you in any way, then visit our website at citychurchmanchester.org to find out more. Well, we're going to have our Bible reading now, so do pick up your Bibles. And for those of you who are new, um, again, it's wonderful to have you with us. Uh, We've been travelling through a series on the Kingdom of God. We've been going through uh, Luke's Gospel, and we've been exploring passages that speak of teachings about what God's Kingdom is really going to be like. Now, we're um, going to be completing our series today before we enter our Christmas uh, season of, uh, of talks. And we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 19, uh, reading from verses 28 to 48. So Luke 28 to 48. So Luke chapter 19, starting at verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down, the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, If they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests and teachers of the law and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him, yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. 
Great, thank you very much, uh, Matt. Hello, everyone. My name's Ralph. I'm one of the leaders here uh, at City Church. And it's great to be able to, to bring this last in the series uh, to you. Um, I'm not sure whether you've got a bonus in the reading or you're getting something less in the sermon, but I'm actually only going to speak on uh, verses uh, 29, 28 rather, through to 44. Uh, but that's, that's the climax as Jesus enters Jerusalem. Let me um, pray for us and we'll turn to look at that. Heavenly Father, we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts might be pleasing in your sight, our Lord, our Rock, and our Redeemer. Amen. Uh, Well, thank you so much if you're one of the people who uh, came along last weekend to the Northern Gospel Project launch conference. It was a wonderful, wonderful event. Uh, we had more than 100 church members with us uh, on a Saturday uh, from churches all over the city. And then on the Friday, we had almost 60 church leaders from cities uh, such as Manchester, Liverpool, uh, up into Leeds. It was just fantastic. And it was wonderful to see people from City Church, but also people from Grace Church, CCM, St. Martin's, Trinity Church, Grace Church, all rubbing shoulders together as we thought about what God might do if we work together for the gospel in this city. I think it was a great success as a conference. I know it was a much better success than the day we decided to launch the Northern Gospel Project online. Because we managed to choose what I'm pretty certain is the worst day in history to launch something online. We chose to launch it on the 8th of September, 2022. People remember what that day was. It's a date that the nation, the world, began to mourn for Queen Elizabeth II. And that's all people want to see online, not anything about the Northern Gospel Project launch. On that day, as well as mourning for the Queen, people started to ask questions about what our new king, King Charles III, would be like. Would he be a good king or a bad king? Would he rule like his mother or would he be radically different? Would he overreach in political issues and and meddle? And would he be accepted by our country? Or or was this really the beginning of the end of the monarchy in the United Kingdom? Well, if you've been with us over the last couple of months, you'll know that we've been going through Luke's Gospel, chapters 17 to 19, and our title for the series has been A New King, Jesus. We've seen what kingdom faith looks like. We've seen how to approach the king. We've seen the cost of following King Jesus. We've thought about how we invest in the kingdom. And today, at the end of Luke chapter 19, the king, King Jesus, finally enters his capital city, Jerusalem, as king. And as we look at these verses today, we're going to think about two questions. First up, what sort of king are you looking for? What sort of king are you looking for? 
Now, the Jewish people in the first century, they were definitely looking for a king. The Old Testament is full of anticipation of a king that would come. The Hebrew name for this king was Messiah. In Greek, that word is Christ. Boy, this Messiah was what they really wanted to see. They were told that that the Messiah would be in the line of David. Someone descended from King David, someone like King David, a king who would rule justly and mercifully, a king who would walk closely with the Lord, a king who would restore to the Israelites what was rightly theirs, the city of Jerusalem, the country that they'd been given by the Lord. They were waiting for someone to do that. And they were longing for that to happen. You see, For the past nearly 100 years, Jerusalem had been under Roman rule. The superpower of the day held Israel in a vice-like grip. Yes, Rome allowed there to be a puppet king, the Herods, who were Jewish. Rome allowed the puppet king Herod to notionally rule the nation. But everyone knew that the real power rested in Rome. The mere presence of the Romans in Jerusalem, that was humiliating to the Jews. Their total subjugation was a blot on their history that could never be washed away. And so the Jews, they were longing for a king. And the Old Testament gave them reason to be expectant. Uh, Psalm 74 spoke about a king who would come from God to bring salvation and to crush Israel's enemies. Isaiah chapter 51 promised that God would act as he had acted in past generations to cut their enemy to pieces and to pierce the monster that opposed them. And the Jews heard that, they thought that monster's Rome. And now, in Luke chapter 19, verse 28, the king arrives in Jerusalem. And and take a look at what he orders the disciples to do in verse 30. I I wonder, have you ever been to watch a a Champions League match at the Etihad? Yeah? Anyone been to see a Champions League match at the Etihad? It is a fantastic spectacle, okay? If you haven't, and it sounds like most of you haven't, you need to go and see a Champions League match. Fortunately, unlike Man United, you can see Champions League matches quite a lot at the Etihad. (laughs) And you get there, and if you get there early, at the start, there's this incredible light show, one of the most fantastic light shows you've ever seen. And then suddenly, over the speakers, the Champions League anthem plays. And the whole stadium They boo because the Champions League anthem symbolises UEFA being there. And for various reasons I don't need to explain to you, Man City fans hate UEFA. Okay, the point is, the Champions League anthem is a definitive sign that UEFA is present. Well, in the same way, what happens in verses 28 to 40, it is the definitive sign that the Messiah, God's chosen king, has arrived in Jerusalem. The people, they they laid their cloaks on the ground, verse 36. Just like they did for King Jehu in 2 Kings chapter 9. 
They're giving Jesus the red carpet treatment. And then Jesus is seated on a donkey, a colt. The donkey was like the peacetime motorcade for the king of Israel. Listen to this prophecy. It's from Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. 500 years before the birth of Jesus, Zechariah prophesied of a day to come when God's Messiah, God's chosen king, would arrive in Jerusalem. Listen to what he says. He says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Do you see what's happening in Luke chapter 19? The Champions League anthem is playing. God's chosen king, the Messiah, has arrived. And the disciples, they recognize that. That's why they cry out in verse 38, using the words of Psalm 118, they say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. He's here, they say. He's here. The Messiah has finally come. The, the warrior king that we we're all waiting for, the, the one who is going to smash the Romans, drive them out, restore the kingdom to Israel. He's here. Well, hey, let's have a party. And they were right. But they were also very, very wrong. What do I mean? Well, at the end of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, okay? if you haven't watched it, you've got to watch it, not just because it's the second time I've used this film as an illustration in this year, but also because it's a classic film, and too many of you have not watched it. But, but at the end of the film, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, at the end of it, the Nazi commander has arrived. Okay, He's beaten Indiana Jones to the cave where the Holy Grail is hidden, okay? And, and he's there. He's passed all the tests to get to the cave, and just one test remains. You see, the cave is, is full of cups, full of possible grails, hundreds of them. And he has to choose the right grail. If he chooses the right holy grail, the, the cup that Jesus was supposed to have drunk from on the night before he died, if he chooses the right grail, he'll have eternal life. If he doesn't, he'll drop dead. And one of his assistants passes him a cup, an ornate, beautiful, gold, jewel-encrusted cup. And he, as he prepares to drink from it, he says, he turns to the camera and he says, this certainly is the cup of the king of king. And he drinks. And in terrible CGI, he shrivels up and dies. You know, that Nazi commander made the same mistake that the disciples made in Luke chapter 19 as Jesus rode into Jerusalem. They rightly identified Jesus as the Messiah, God's promised king. But, but they wrongly assumed that he was coming in a blaze of glory and power and majesty and gold. They hadn't properly understood the sort of king he was. And they hadn't understood the sort of king they need. 
So let me ask you, what sort of king do you think you need? Now, I, I know you're sat there and you're thinking, Ralph, 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 Ralph. I, I don't need a king. Yes, yeah. Okay, King Charles, I'll take King Charles, okay? He's a paper king, you know, he does all the, the ceremony. But I don't want a real king. Don't be so sure. Don't be so sure. Uh, the author, C.S. Lewis, who's, who's incredibly perceptive about things like this, he, he wrote this. He wrote, When men are forbidden to honour a king, they honour millionaires, athletes, or film stars instead, even famous prostitutes or gangsters. For spiritual nature, like bodily nature, will be served. Deny it food, and it will gobble poison. Now, what does Lewis mean here? He means that we are spiritually hardwired to worship a king. Yes, we might insist that we don't need a king, but that doesn't stop it being true. So, so some people, like the disciples, they're longing for a king who will come in power to bring them victory, to bring them health, to bring them wealth. Others say, well, I, I don't want a king. It's just also medieval having a king. But they still look to honour someone. That's why the 20th century was the most celebrity-obsessed century we've ever had. That's why this month and next month, most of the world are going to be worshipping at the shrine of the World Cup in Qatar. We need to honour someone. For some of us, our, our king is financial security. We will do whatever it takes to honour our king and make ourselves comfortable. But for others of us, our king is our, our looks. We pay homage at the shrine of beauty. We spend thousands and thousands on cosmetics and treatments to worship the king of our own looks. We hunger for a king like we hunger for food, Lewis says. The problem is we don't look in the right place and we end up gobbling poison. I mean, that's what we see happening, isn't it? Our, our pursuit of celebrity, of wealth, of beauty and health, it, it gobbles us up and it poisons our souls. So what king are you looking for? Do you know what king you need? The disciples got it wrong. They thought they needed a king to kill for them. Instead, they needed one to die for them. They thought they needed a strong king, but instead they needed a weak one. Uh, J.R. Tolkien finished The Lord of the Rings in 1948, just a few years after the end of World War II. And it's really interesting because you can see it written against the backdrop of an evil king, Hitler, who was defeated by worldly strength in the Allies. And the book 
the Lord of the Rings, it's set around a great conflict. On the one side, you have the evil dark Lord Sauron. And throughout the book, he and his servants, they are desperately scouring over Middle-earth, searching to find a terrible, terrible weapon, the ring of deadly power. Now, had Sauron found that ring, he would have been able to use it to conquer Middle-earth and to make sure everyone was under his reign and power. And his worst fear, Sauron's worst fear, the, the thing he dreaded more than anything else, was that his enemies, who, who he knew had discovered the ring already, he feared that his enemies would use that ring against him. But at the climax of the book, the two hobbits, Frodo and Sam, instead of using the ring, they destroy it. And the lesson? True strength is demonstrated not by wielding power, but by giving it up. The king we need came in weakness, not power. He came that way because our greatest need is not for victory, is not for wealth, is not for comfort, but for peace. Verse 38. Did you notice that? Peace in heaven. Peace with the God who made us, but who we push to the very periphery of our life. And that can only come through a king who rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, not a battle horse. A king who ascended a cross of shame, not a throne of comfort. A king who was crowned with thorns, not gold. That is the king we need. One who laid down his power rather than taking it up. So let me ask you a second and a final question. Will you bow the knee? Will you bow your knee? That King Charles' accession to the throne, it really did divide media opinion. So, so most people on social media, they, they were very polite, you know, they wanted to respect the Queen and they, they didn't want to rush to, to say too much. But there was a small group of people who said, now is the time, now is the time that we should become a republic. We don't need a king anymore. Well, in the same way, Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem, it divided public opinion. Some, like the disciples, rejoiced. Verse 37, they hailed Jesus as king. But the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, the ones who should have been there at the front of the queue, welcoming in the Messiah, look at how they respond. Verse 39, teacher. Notice they call him teacher, not king. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Shut them up. Tell your disciples who you really are. Tell them that you're just a teacher. Look at how Jesus responds, verse 40. I tell you, if they keep quiet, 
the stones will cry out. Ouch. Rocks can see what the religious elite cannot. The lifeless knows true life when it sees it, while the living does not. We do well to pause and ask, why was it that the Pharisees rejected Jesus as king? Why do people today refuse to bow the knee to Jesus? It is tempting to think that it's because of a lack of evidence. But we need to realize that that almost always is not the case. I mean, the Pharisees, the religious leaders here, they had mountains of evidence. They had all the miracles that Jesus had performed. I mean, that is what caused the disciples in verse 37 to to joyfully praise God. They'd seen the miracles. He had shown them in numerous ways that he was king over sin, over Satan, over death. He'd cast out demons. He'd given sight to the blind. He'd given hearing to the deaf. He'd cleansed the leper. He'd enabled the lame to walk. He had even raised the dead to life. And and just days after this encounter, Jesus would perform the greatest miracle of all, rising from the dead on the third day, victorious over sin and death. When I first began looking into Christianity, uh, almost 25 years ago now, This was the thing. This was the thing that I just could not find any way around. The empty tomb. You see, if Jesus hadn't really risen from the dead, if he was still in the tomb, then surely the public authorities would have just produced his body. What you're saying is nonsense. Look, here's the body of Jesus. He's dead. Uh, but, But maybe, maybe... The disciples stole the body. Perhaps that's that's plausible, isn't it? Until you realize what happened to the disciples afterwards. You see, if, if the disciples had stolen the body, if they knew that it was just a great hoax, why would every single one of them except one die as martyrs for their belief that Jesus had risen from the dead. If they knew, if they knew it was not true, why would they do that? I could never get my head around the historic evidence of the empty tomb. Nor could I explain how come Jesus so accurately fulfilled all of the Old Testament prophecies about him. I mean, we've seen that today, haven't we? How Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a colt, the foal of a donkey, just as Zechariah 9 had said he would. He was born in just the place the Old Testament said he would be born in. He was born in Bethlehem. He was of the tribe that the Old Testament said he would be of. He was of the tribe of Judah. And he was a Nazarene, just as the Old Testament said he would be. I quoted from Isaiah chapter 51 earlier on. Remember that? The the picture of the great warrior king from the Lord? Well, just two chapters later, in Isaiah chapter 53, remember this was written 700 years before Jesus came? 
Listen to what it says about that warrior king now. It says he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Fulfilled exactly in Jesus' coming. Friends, the evidence is compelling. And the religious leaders knew that. But they were there. They, they saw the miracles with their own eyes. And they knew their Old Testaments far better than we do. And yet they still rejected Jesus. Why? Well, it wasn't because they couldn't believe. It was because they wouldn't believe. Just turn over the page backwards, just, just a little bit to the passage we looked at last week with Matt, the, the parable. Now, the parable of the ten miners, Jesus told it to describe what was just about to happen. And notice the reason in verse 14 why the citizens of the city rejected the man as their king. Verse 14 it was because they did not want him to be their king. You see, their objection wasn't primarily an intellectual objection. It was a moral one. We often treat belief as being a kind of matter of mental assent. Like I believe that water is made up of, of two atoms of hydrogen and one of oxygen. Or, or else, we treat it as a matter of taste. Like, I believe Manchester City are the very best team in the whole world. But believing that Jesus is the king, that is not mere mental assent or taste. No, it makes demands on our lives. That's why the Pharisees didn't want Jesus as their king. And it's the reason why people don't want Jesus to be their king today. We want to run our lives our way. Now, not a lot of us like to admit that. But Thomas Nagel, who's a professor of law and philosophy at New York University, he's refreshingly honest, and he wrote this. He said, I want atheism to be true, and I'm made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I... Be don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. We don't want to bow the knee to a king, to any king. But that's why many people today claim to be atheists. They don't want anyone to be king of their sex life, of their possessions, of their work life. But, but here's the thing, we, we saw it in the previous point as well. Everybody has a king, without exception. We all bow before some throne in our life. The only question is, what throne is it? And is the person sitting on it good? 
there's a book in the Old Testament. It's called the Book of Judges. It's quite a long book, and it's quite a tragic book. A gloomy, gloomy tale. And it has the same cycle happening again and again and again. God's people, the Israelites, they rebel against God. They sin. They're judged for their sin, and then they cry out for rescue, and then God rescues them, and then they rebel against him again. And the cycle continues and continues and goes and goes and goes. And at the end of the book, at the end of the whole book, chapter 21, verse 25, there is this single short verse, and it says this, In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw Israel had no king in those days. But of course they did. The people had millions of kings. They bowed to their own desires. In C.S. Lewis's words, they gobbled up the poison of their own uncontrollable desires. And the book of Judges tells us that it consumed them. So who are you going to bow the knee to today? Before we close, just take a look at verses 41 to 44 of Luke 19. They describe, Jesus is describing what will happen 40 years later when Rome under Emperor Vespasian goes to invade Jerusalem and raises the city to the ground. I guess it begs the question, well, why does Jesus say this at this point? And here's the reason, I think. Jesus wants the religious leaders, the, the Pharisees, the chief priests, he wants them to know what the one that they are currently bowing the knee to will one day do to them. Because, you know, that's what the Pharisees and the religious leaders did. They, they bowed the knee to Rome. Just one week later, recorded in Luke chapter 22, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the elders, they would hand Jesus over to the Roman governor Pontius Pilate. Pilate alone could execute someone in Israel. And because the Jewish leaders so didn't want to bow the knee to Jesus, the only way they could get rid of him was by bowing the knee to Rome, who'd kill off Jesus for them. They bowed the knee to the one who would eventually come and destroy them. My friends, we, we all have a king. We all bow the knee to that king. The only question is, do you bow your knee to a king who will destroy you or to a king who will save you? Who do you bow your knee to? Do you bow your knee to your social media feeds, being influenced by whatever it is that the latest influencer is telling you you really need? Do you bow your knee to your sex drive, letting it dictate how you spend your time and your money, where you look for love, and the sort of risks you're willing to run in order to find it? Do you bow your knee to your boss at work, determined to win their approval, whatever the cost, whatever the hours, whatever they demand, because you want their approval? 
Do you bow your knee to your own sense of self-identity, not realizing that it will crush you because you were never made to bear the weight that that will put on your soul? Or will you bow your knee to Jesus? The king who, verse 42, when he saw the city, when he saw it in its rebellion against him, he wept. You see, this is a good king. This is a king who knows you inside out, who made you, who loves you. A king who wants the very, very best for you, who is willing to die in your place, taking the punishment that you deserve, who has come into your life on a peaceful donkey rather than on a mighty horse, who has come to save you, not destroy you. Will you bow your knee to a king like that today before it's too late? Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are a king like no other. Thank you that you are a king who is glorious and merciful. Thank you that you are a king who came in weakness, who who set aside his power that he might save and save us entirely. Oh Lord, help us to bow the knee before King Jesus today. Amen.